Hi, I'm James. And I'm Anthony. And this is Words and Numbers, presented by FEE, the Foundation for Economic Education. Ant, what's new and exciting in your world this week? Our last two episodes were a conversation with Steve Horwitz about the gender pay gap and the various reasons why the gap appears not to be the result of gender discrimination in hiring, though it may be the result of gender discrimination in various places people develop their human capital. The whole conversation got me thinking about another gap that people don't discuss nearly as much, the social security race gap. Over the course of a worker's career, the worker pays into Social Security, and when the person retires, Social Security pays the person retirement benefits that vary based on how much the person earned while working. At least it's been that way up until now. Correct. The benefits continue until the person dies, then they stop. Now, there are some exceptions. If the retiree has dependent children or a spouse, the payments can continue. But once the children reach age 18 or the spouse dies, again, the payments stop. This is very different from what happens with a private retirement account, an IRA or a 401k. When a person dies, whatever's left in the private retirement account gets passed on to the heirs. But with Social Security benefits, unused retirement benefits just revert to the government. The fact that Social Security benefits only last as long as you live means that Social Security is a worse deal for people with shorter life expectancies. And life expectancies differ by race. At age 65, the average white male can expect to live another 18 years versus about 16 years for the average black male. That means that other things equal the average black male can expect to receive around 90 cents in Social Security benefits for every $1 the average white male receives. Similarly, because women live longer than men, other things equal, the average man can expect to receive around 85 cents in Social Security benefits for every $1 the average female receives. The Social Security benefits race gap exists because the federal government imposes an effective 100% death tax on the money workers pay into Social Security. Given Social Security's impending insolvency, there's not much that can be done to correct this. But it is yet one more reason why we should consider scrapping the system in favor of private retirement accounts. Sooner or later, we're not going to have much of a choice. Nope. It's going to be scrapped for us. It's just going to happen. You and I often talk about how people go merrily off to war against math and how math kind of always wins. Yeah, although, you know, it had never occurred to me until we're just having this conversation right now. But we've talked about the UBI before, universal basic income. I wonder if it's politically possible for Social Security to be transformed into UBI. You know, I don't know how it would make any difference, right? You could see if you wanted to expand the UBI and you can get your toe in the pool this way. But, you know, in the end, how is it going to be any different? A bunch of money is going to get paid into it. All of that money will be spent by the government and then there'll be a big giant IOU there too. Right. I think the difference isn't mathematical so much as political, that it would give politicians cover for massively increasing the tax instead of paying... 6% or 7% or whatever it is of your paycheck, you're going to pay in 20% of your paycheck. But on the other hand, everybody's going to get a UBI check. I don't like that at all. No, I don't either, but I could see it providing some political cover. 
I just said that to keep the hate mail to a minimum. <laughs> you and I both know we don't like that, but now everybody knows we don't like that. So if you've got more hate mail to send, send it to Anthony. On my side, Ant, I've got something that's, I think, really strange and something that we're going to be talking a lot about for the next couple of years. There's a report out in New Jersey, of all places, that almost one-third of all the small businesses there have closed. One-third? One-third, never to be opened again. But that's not the alarming part. You know, we should say that when you read these headlines, the authors never write the headlines. Right, yeah. So often we get hate mail about the headline of an article that says something completely different. And so too this one. Buried down three or four paragraphs later, we get this. Harvard-based data project TrackTheRecovery.org estimated that 31% of businesses have closed down so far as of November 9th. This number is just above the national average. Mm. The national average is 30%. Holy crap. I don't even know how to begin unpacking this so people would know what a catastrophe this is. Yeah. Now, I'm wanting a little bit of context here. I don't know off the top of my head what fraction of businesses close just on a regular basis over a given year. I'm sure it's not anywhere near 30%, but it's something. We called this back in, what, probably May, when reports were coming out of New York City saying that it looks like a third of businesses are going to close. That seems to be the correct number as we keep right on rolling down the COVID highway. This is going to be terrible. There's an upside to this, which I don't think many people appreciate, and that is that American law is really, really good at handling bankruptcy. And so, yeah, it's the case that, you know, a third of the businesses close, but those assets, the buildings, the machinery, this sort of thing, doesn't disappear. It gets recycled relatively efficiently when new entrepreneurs come along and buy it for pennies on the dollar. Right. But for those 30% of the people out there who are going belly up, that is cold comfort. Oh, absolutely. They don't want to hear about that. They want to hear about why it was they had to fail because the government decided they had to fail. It did. And people are going to point to the big corporations and ask, why are they taking over such large market shares to the detriment of small businesses? Well- Yeah, guess what? Yeah, the lockdown contributed to that. Tremendously. So I'm I'm interested to see where this goes further on down the road, but I really don't like what I'm seeing now. It looks really catastrophic. From that, we go, of course, to the foolishness of the week. You got a guess this weekend? What happened this week? Lots of contestants this week. <laughs> Lots of contestants. I've kind of stayed away from the news. It's just so depressing. What do you have for It foolishness? is kind of depressing. Well, we return, how about that, to Donald Trump. <laughs> What's because he Is there anything left for him to do? Because our fearless leader and big toe has managed to get himself onto a TV interview with Maria Bartiromo, who is a Fox News person. Now she does financial markets. And in his interview with her, he decides now that the FBI rigged the election against him. The FBI did. Now it's the FBI. I think that leaves us one and one half steps from aliens from outer space. (laughs) Right. Yeah. It's gotten so asinine that I think every single American, except for the 74 million or so who voted for him, was in on it. Yeah. And by that time, of course, we don't call it a conspiracy. We call it the national vote. He seems absolutely unable to process the probability that a lot of the American people don't particularly care for him. Mm -hmm. How do you not see it? How stupid must you be? And following that little comment up, how stupid must you be? 
I give you everybody on my Twitter feed who is now saying the FBI was in on the election fraud. Does he provide any detail as to how that would actually work? Sweet Lord in heaven, no. <laughs> come, come, come on. There's nothing but rank assertion here. There's no follow-up. There's no evidence. There's not even an argument. This is just assertion after assertion, and they're getting a little crazier with each passing week. I don't know what it's going to look like by the time Joe Biden puts his hand on a Bible, but I suspect it's going to be even worse than this. And more than a little part of me kind of hopes that he refuses to exit the premises and has to be escorted out. What you say repeatedly, and I like it, to think about how many people would have to be involved in a conspiracy like that. So you've got the FBI, and there's not one central voting location. To be involved, they would have to have their fingers in every single voting district throughout the country. That's right. And here's what happens when that happens. People talk about it. Right. Somebody somewhere says something. And somebody somewhere will have even a smidge you'll pardon the technical term, of evidence. Yeah. But all we're treated to, of course, is assertion after assertion. And we're going to talk about this, and it's going to be a brief conversation about the Sidney Powell nonsense, and you can get that over at the Patreon bonus account if you're so inclined. To keep the Words and Numbers ball rolling, hike over to patreon.com slash wordsandnumbers where for just slightly more than the cost of James Hair Care products, you can keep his shiny pate happy. So I guess I'm supposed to ask a completely different question, Ant. You're not even curious as to what it might be. <laughs> Go ahead. I guess I'll help you out. What are the odds that you're going to say something interesting? The odds are high. No, the odds well, are high that I will find it interesting. Well, that's always correct, isn't it? <laughs> but we often ask crazy types of questions, but we should be asking about outcomes and probabilities. These are the things that we're interested in. Yeah, which sounds kind of esoteric, except that where the rubber hits the road, that's what non-statisticians call risk or uncertainty. And you know, Ant, I remember telling this to a class I was teaching a year ago. And when I started telling them this, they all looked at me as if I had three heads. But within 10 minutes, the entire room was in heated agreement with me. Yep. And it was a simple observation. It's just that as I, as we, as human beings walk through life, we all do constant cost-benefit analyses. It literally never stops. Every single thing you do in the space of a day is easily included under the umbrella of cost-benefit analysis. Absolutely. And it sounds a little weird at first, but when you think about it, it gets to be that absolutely answer that you gave. You've obviously thought about this before. I had just come to it maybe a year or two ago, but it's a curious thing. It's cost-benefit analysis, what you might call weighing the pros and the cons, but we do this not just explicitly. We do it intuitively all the time. Right. Do you want to eat now? Do you want to eat later? We call it a gut reaction. It's cost benefit. And that's my take on it as well. Most of this happens way in your subconscious, yeah. but it does absolutely happen. If only walking from your car to class, did you cross the street to get to the shady spot in Tucson, Arizona, where it's 118 degrees? Right. It's worth it to cross the street to get the shade. So it can be as mundane as that. And it becomes more interesting when you throw in randomness. So things like, should I go out with my friends or should I study for the test that's tomorrow? And I play a game here where, well, the right answer depends on the probability of that test being hard versus who interesting is going out that I want to spend time with. And I got a great story here. 
Now, you're not going to understand it because it's about a manly thing, baseball. <laughs> but other people will understand this. I was sitting in my dorm room, and it would have been 1986, give or take. A couple of guys knocked on my door and said, hey, we're going down to Fenway to catch the game. You want to come? And I said, well, I'm almost done studying for this exam I've got tomorrow. I better knuckle down and do this. And I studied for the next three, four hours, and I heard a very excited knock on my door. They walked in and they said, do you know who holds the single game strikeout record for the major league baseball? And I said, no. And they said, Roger Clemens struck out 20 tonight. Wow. I missed this outstanding thing that could never be predicted, of course, right? And had you known it was going to happen, you would have gone. No question. But that's the thing. You don't know in advance. So you make the best guess you can. When we do that more rigorously, we refer to it as probabilities or risk. I spoke to a student on one of our high school junkets who was convinced that businesses incur little risk. And as I'm talking to this kid... Hold the phone here. How the hell can anybody say such a thing? Businesses shoulder tremendous risk. Well, it's the interesting thing that it occurred to me as the kid looks around, what does he see? He sees a bunch of businesses that are in business. He suffers from an observation bias. He sees the businesses that worked out, that made a profit. He doesn't see the ones that went under, that went bankrupt. And so from his perspective, there's little risk. And it occurs to me, it's an incorrect approach to thinking about risk. But it's the same kind of thing that I deal with with my teenagers when they do something stupid. And I say, look, that's ridiculous. You shouldn't have done this. Horrible things could have happened. And their response is, yeah, but they didn't. Completely missing the fact that we're talking about the probabilities here, not what actually came out. And if you try this again, the probabilities could break the other direction and all hell's going to break loose. It's a little difficult to get your head around how people look at the concept of risk. And I'll tell you this, when I was a young man, I never felt it. It was an afterthought. Hmm. Now that I'm older, it's an omnipresent thought. It has something to do with the amount one has to lose. Yeah, that's correct. If you've got nothing to lose, what do you care, right? Risk is quite irrelevant if you've got nothing to lose. And when you're, I don't know, 16 to 24, how much do you really have? And the answer is almost nothing. I'm convinced this is why when we see people get into car accidents and who turn out to be well underinsured, I think this is the reason why. They say, what's the lowest insurance level I can get to and get a car on the road? And I'll just pay that. At my age now, when I'm a businessman after a fashion, when I have a mortgage and three kids, a couple of cars, there's a lot to lose here. Yeah. I'm going to get my insurance ducks in a row. The risk is different to me now than it was once upon a time. You see this misunderstanding of risk when I can't count the number of times people have said something to me like, well, I owned my house for 20 years and I paid insurance on it every year and I never used the insurance, so the money was wasted. I'm thinking, no, out loud. that's not how this works. Yeah, the money was not wasted. What you did is you purchased security against the likelihood of something happening. Just because something didn't happen doesn't mean you wasted your money. And and I'm pretty sure that I've identified where this problem starts. Where do people fundamentally start misunderstanding what insurance is? I think it's from healthcare. That's a big contributor. I think it's a huge contributor because I once said in a room full of adults, yes, I wish I had health insurance. I wish I had catastrophic health insurance. So if I broke a bone, if I got a lymphoma, right, something like this, then I would be covered what, a five, $6,000 deductible, whatever. 
that's insurance. It's how you protect yourself against terrible, terrible outcomes that would have sunk you otherwise. That's insurance. But when we think about healthcare insurance, what we think about is going to the doctor for free. Right. What we're actually thinking of is maintenance, which has nothing to do with insurance. I'm going to get all riled up here and say, as I often do, you don't go to the doctor free for crying out loud. It's not free, but I get it, right? I get the fundamental difference here. And I think the one has polluted our understanding of the other. When we think about health insurance, I think a better analogy is we treat it like a Christmas club that you put money into it and then later on you take money out. But what's going to happen there, that's all going to even out. The money you put in is going to equal the money you took out. That's not what insurance is about. You realize Christmas clubs went the way of the dodo when my mother was in her 40s, right? Yeah, I know. It was a thing when I was a kid. It kind of disappeared. For those of you who don't know what it is, it's a service that banks used to provide that you put money in the bank every month and they keep it for you. They don't give it back to you. And then come Christmas, they give it back to you. So basically, it's just a savings account. Yep. I had a Christmas club one year and it was a dollar a week. So I had $52 when Christmas came along. It was so onerous that I decided never to do it again. Well, I don't understand why people did in the first place. You just open a savings account and be done with it. But this is the thing, the insurance that we normally think of, the health insurance that pays for you know the doctor's visit or the teeth cleaning or glasses or whatever, you're putting in a certain amount of money every month and that's basically what you're eating up minus the insurance company's overhead at the end of the year. That's not what insurance is. What insurance is, is a mechanism by which I can be compensated an amount that is way higher than what I paid in. Right. Because an event happens that has such a low probability that it's only going to occur once out of whatever, a hundred or a thousand times. So if you get a hundred or a thousand people paying in, one of those people is going to have to claim on that insurance and it's going to pay back more than what the person ever paid in the first place. That's what insurance is. And it's all those people who said, I had insurance for 20 years and never used it. What a ripoff. Well, those are the premiums that pay out for the other guy who lost everything. Right. For example, add up how much you paid in insurance over those 20 years. I think my house insurance is like $1,000 a year, maybe $1,500 a year, something like that. Over the course of 20 years, what is that? Like $30,000? But if the house burns down, the insurance company will pay several hundred thousands of dollars far more than what I paid in. How is that possible? Because of the bunch of people who paid in and never made a claim. I've never really understood why this is so hard. People can't get it. Yeah, I think you're right that it's the way we do health insurance has skewed people's perceptions of what insurance is. I want to talk a little bit about how this plays out in financial markets. I was giving a lecture on stock a few months ago And it occurred to me as I'm giving this lecture that the invention of stock enabled something really cool to happen that had never happened before. And that is it separated the roles of investor and entrepreneur. Prior to the invention of stock, if you had an idea for a business, you had to save up your money and you start the business with the money that you saved up. Now with stock for the first time, you can have somebody else who has the money invest in the person who has the idea and then the business gets off the ground. And the person who has the money puts it in gets some of that back. We call that stock. And in separating out those two roles of investor and entrepreneur, what you've also done is separated out the risk. 
that the entrepreneur who otherwise would have had to take on the risk of starting the business, that risk can be offloaded onto the investor. It's like with insurance. If the company turns out to be a big hit, a huge success, the investor makes tons of money. And if it doesn't, if it goes bankrupt, well, the investor's out the money. And this brings us to, for example, Jeff Bezos and people complaining about all these billions of dollars that he has in Amazon stock. Well, what's going on here is he took a risk. He invested his money into this company and the company took off. And so now it's worth a lot, but it could have gone the other way. Let's back up a minute here. All of that is correct. I don't want to make it seem like it isn't. But what you're saying is not nearly correct enough. He sacrificed damn near everything for decades yeah. to get this company up and running. This wasn't, I have an idea, and then the next year everybody was rich. Yeah. This was a long, torturous, miserable process that he stuck with because he absolutely believed in it. Even when everybody in the world was telling him to stop, he kept right on going. I think it's insulting that we think of his position right now, never remembering the 30 years prior to now where he was legitimately poor and killing himself and, you know, the only employee in the building still doing the work. And I think these sorts of things actually matter quite a lot. I've said words like that to people and they come back with something like, well, okay, he deserves something, but not as much as he has. And what they're missing is that Amazon is a one in a million, one in a billion event. This is not normally what happens with companies. And what the person sees is Jeff Bezos, who did well. What the person doesn't see are the millions of other entrepreneurs who tried something similar and failed. They don't make the evening news. But Bezos quite literally lucked out on a one in a million shot. And I don't want to diminish what he accomplished by saying that there was an element of luck in it, but there was absolutely an element of luck in it. Oh, yeah. And that's true of anybody who succeeds at anything. It wasn't 100% luck, but there was certainly an element of luck. Not by a long shot. And I don't even think the controlling amount was luck, but it does play and it plays big every time. What you find is people who work really hard are almost always the ones who end up getting lucky. There's this too, right? And people want things without all the hard work that goes into achieving things. And that's what they constantly miss. They see that Bezos is very fortunate, very lucky. They don't see the decades of his life that he poured into this thing to make it work. In discussing these things with people, I'll go down this path that we've gone down, and often people will say something like, all right, well, maybe I can justify in my mind something like a Bezos because he did create something, he created Amazon, but I can't justify, for example, speculators, somebody who buys stock and turns around and resells it later at a profit. This person's just a leech on society. He's taking profit, but he hasn't produced anything. Well, hold the phone now, because it's hopefully he will sell it at a profit. Yes, that's exactly right. There's no guarantee. We're right back to risk again. Yeah, and that's the part that people don't understand. You can see it most clearly in financial markets. Our economy has evolved to such a point that we have actually turned risk into a good that can be bought and sold. And that's what the speculator does. When he puts his money in and takes ownership of whatever the financial asset is, while he holds that financial asset, he is also holding the risk of that financial asset dropping in value. He has quite literally taken risk out of the market. It's the personal assumption of risk. 
Yeah, and that's a huge benefit to the people who don't want to hold the risk, be it entrepreneurs or homeowners or whatever it is. That's right. Sometimes people like that need to build the business, not worrying every five seconds whether that business is still going to be there tomorrow. Yeah, exactly so. This is a bit of insulation against that sort of outcome. You talk about a business, think about something as mundane as a car. If there were no such thing as insurance, if it were not possible to sell the risk of owning a car, how often would we drive? You'd think to yourself, oh my God, I've got to go to the store, but I take that car out. If somebody hits it, that's $20,000 down the drain. Right. Or worse, if you get injured. Yeah. Or worse, if you get injured, we'd be walking everywhere simply because we couldn't bear to stand that kind of risk. The more you peel back the layers of life, the more you realize there's risk underneath everything. If you're talking about a human interaction, there is definitionally risk at the heart of that. You may have to quantify the risk in different ways, but there's always risk. But then it goes in the other direction too. We've been talking about risk as a bad thing and speculators perform a service. Insurance companies perform the same kind of service by taking risk off of our hands. But there are people who really enjoy risk. Gamblers. I know you play poker on Thursday nights. People who buy scratch-off lottery tickets. People who go to Vegas. What are you doing? You're actually going out and purchasing risk because you enjoy the thrill of maybe I'll walk away with a lot of money, maybe I won't, something like this. And you're probably also describing people who enjoy skydiving. Sure, right. These kinds of silly things that are inherently risky. I don't see poker as a risk. I see skydiving as a risk. You're skilled at poker, I understand. I'm good enough that I'm not out of my depth. Imagine if you're into skydiving or my son is into mountain climbing. If you were in a situation where you could do that and there was absolutely no risk, maybe you're wearing some kind of suit that inflates into an airbag or something, but you're perfectly protected. Still, people would mountain climb, people would still jump out of planes, but I guarantee you that it would not be as interesting. That's right. It would be as interesting as taking a monorail. Yeah. Which is not terribly fascinating. One interesting thing as we talk about risk is the evolution of futures contracts. A futures contract is a contract in which I promise to sell you something at some point in the future and we agree today on the price of that thing. And investors can use these things to, in essence, gamble on prices of corn or soybeans or whatever it is. This is the commodities market. The commodities market, yeah. But futures contracts evolved for precisely this purpose, that we had a situation where farmers had to decide nine months ahead of time what they were going to plant and how much they were going to plant, not knowing whether the season would be good or be bad, whether there'd be a surplus or a shortage of this stuff, what the price was going to be. And so farmers necessarily would be reluctant to plant too much because it's a tremendous risk until someone invented futures contracts. And it enabled the farmers to lock in the price before they'd even planted the field. What's happening is the person on the other side of that contract took the risk off the farmer's plate, and that enabled the farmer to plant more. And lo and behold, what happens? All of a sudden, we can feed people we couldn't feed before simply because we learned how to commoditize risk. And let's be clear, both sides of that transaction walked away with less risk than they had prior to it. 
It's not that the farmer offloaded his risk onto a buyer. The buyer has a set of risks too. I need grain. It costs X today. I have no idea what it's going to cost in 10 months, but that's when I need it. And I'm going to lock in a price for 10 months hence. He's facing less risk too. That's a good point. In fact, something else interesting happens, which is you could have a buyer that engages in a number of these different sorts of contracts investing in corn on the one side and soybeans on the other and something else on the other. And I don't know enough about farming to make this work. But the essence is the person on the other side of the contract could buy a number of different contracts such that weather conditions are good for crop A, they would be bad for crop B, but they're good for crop B, they'd be bad for crop A. And so by holding a whole bunch of these contracts, the person on the other end of the futures contract, in effect, caused the individual risk to cancel out in a way the farmer could never do. It's actually a brilliant thing if you think it through. It really is. It doesn't seem like it would be that world changing upon first hearing. But the more you think it through, the better everything seems to get. This is one of those human institutional inventions that literally changed the course of humanity. It really is. And it's what breaks my heart when people get down on speculators and arbitragers and this kind of thing and say it's just gambling. Yeah, for some of those people, it really is. But there's much more to it. And look at really what they're not saying. The very people who complain about it the most benefit from it exactly as much as everybody else. Right. Those people are going to have lots to eat all winter long. We're not having beets and sweet potatoes all winter long. You can get whatever food you want all winter long, right? Because of this. Yeah. I think it stretches to damn near every part of the human experience. We're just better across the board because of this invention. Yeah, I think that's absolutely correct. The ability to commoditize risk makes our lives tremendously better. Because come to find out, risk is a real problem. And when you can insulate individuals against it, they outproduce like you wouldn't believe. And notice something else. There's an interesting role here for the rich, because again, we get down on the rich, but it requires someone who's rich to be willing to take on that risk. That's right. To have the wherewithal to do so. And to be willing to take it on, there has to be a profit involved. This is one of the things that amazes me, people complaining about these rich insurance companies. James, I am happy that my insurance company is rich. Oh, me too. Because it means if my house ever burns down, they'll be able to pay for it. That's right. There's an ad that comes on TV every couple of hours that gives the name of the insurance company and says, we've never missed a payment. Well, yeah, an insurance company that misses payments is not an insurance company. (laughs) Right. It's a a scam. (laughs) That's right. It's the company after which you need insurance. So yeah, can it pay out? And big, giant, healthy insurance companies, that's exactly what you want to see. Because for the people who have, in fact, just lost everything when the tornado comes through, they get made whole. They get to rebuild their homes. They're not done for the rest of their lives. They're inconvenienced for a bit. And that's a better option. Go back just 100 years, and it was life-changing. In fact, it could spell the death of a family. Right. There's just no way to recover. So I guess we've done the unthinkable here today, and we've defended, what, rich people, insurance companies. Speculators. Speculators. <laughs> Boy, all the horrible capitalists have come in under the lens today. You don't see these things because they all operate in the background, and yet it's incredibly important. And so we have to be very careful when we do things like call on our politicians to regulate this person or that person or take his money away or whatever it is because that has ramifications that we may not fully appreciate. 
So that's all the time we've got this week on Words and Numbers. Be sure to join us next week when we defend even worse people. I don't know who that will be, but, but we'll figure it out over the next five, seven days. Until then, follow us on Twitter. Join Words and Numbers backstage where the conversation continues. Keep the email coming. Words and Numbers podcast at gmail.com. We have not encouraged people to buy our book recently. You can buy our book, Cooperation and Coercion, on Amazon. It's a great book. You should check it out. It would make a wonderful Christmas gift to all of the crazy people in your family. That's right. Buy one for each of them. There's something in that book that will offend literally everyone. So <laughs> if you're looking to be the pebble in Uncle George's shoe, give him this book. Cooperation and Coercion on Amazon. We'll put a link in the show notes for you. But you should also join us over on the Patreon. That would be really, really helpful if you could find your way clear to come on over there. Oh, be, tell them to be nice, James. Right. I know it's hard. I know it's difficult with this election business and everybody in the world being stupid in some way or another, but it's almost over. We're going to be done with this in four or five weeks. And then you got to look each other in the eye again and remember what a pack of jerks y'all were. So maybe, just maybe, we had that one off at the pass and just be nice to each other. You don't have to be jerks. You could be nice to each other and you should be. It's hard, but it's worth it. See you later, Ant. See you next week, James. 